My name is Grit Laskin, and you are listening to the podcast Talking Blues. In my research of you, I didn't know this about you, but I guess most people do, that you're the member of the Order of Canada. Correct. And you received that, or I don't know what, you were honored with that in 2012? Uh, yeah, it'd be around then, yeah. Okay, so, you do so many things. <laughs> you are a musician, you run a record company, you're very active in the folk scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you make guitars, you yeah. write books. Yeah. When you get... Um, when you become an Order of Canada member, is that based on one thing or is that just the collective you? Yeah, my understanding is that they first look for people who are innovators in their field, who are changing it. Right. Um, but then what else do they do? What else are they involved in that engages them in things that are, you know, they can perceive as benefits to the country? And that, my understanding is you can't just be brilliant at one thing. You've got to be doing things for the greater community in their eyes before they consider you for Order of Canada. So what was it like to find that out? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I'm at my workshop and right. I get a phone call and I, you know, I, I was so shocked when they said hi, I, this woman called me. I forget her name offhand, but she called and said, "I'm phoning from the Governor General's residence, and I'm phoning to let you know you are being." Uh, what was the word she used? Did she say you're being offered, or you're being given the Order of Canada, and do you accept? <laughs> You're standing there like, you know, when, when she first said, I'll, I'll step back for a sec. When she first said where she was calling from, I thought, oh, I wonder who put me down as a, you know, a recommender or something. And they wanted to check with me. Is this person worthy or something? That's what's going through my head. Gee, right. I wonder who's getting it. And they, you know, they said me. And I, and I was so shocked. You know, my, my re, you know, my habit is to, is to fall back onto humor or something. I don't know. I said, um, well... What options do I have? <laughs> I said, I said, could I go for the cash? <laughs> I actually said that to her. And happily, she laughed. And she said, no, no, it's not like that. And I said, well, I'm sorry. It's, it's a bit of a shock, even if it's a pleasant shock. But and, and I'm very honored. And of course, I accept. Now, does it, is it because somebody nominated you? How does that work? Yeah. And you don't find out about it. Oh. Uh but I was apparently I was nominated by a couple of different people, okay. and then the organization that is the the awards, all the staff, they look at who's been nominated, who meets their initial criteria, and then somebody researches you and confirms that you are a worthy candidate. And um, I ended up meeting this young fellow who was my researcher, and he was so excited to meet me. I guess maybe what I was into was more things that are of interest to him. So he was very excited to actually meet the person who he researched and made sure I, I met all the criteria and checked off all the boxes. Um, but essentially, that's what happens, and then you're just notified. And and it's uh, I didn't even know it was ongoing. As I said, I had no idea. Wow. So what does that mean to you? What does that well, award mean to you? 
it's it's really one of the greatest honors the country can bestow mm-hmm. and and you feel it um, one wonderful thing about the order of canada is it's multidisciplinary so in any given round of it every discipline whether it's medicine sports journalism uh, social activism crafts art you know whatever music right. uh, there are people from all these disciplines getting it at the same time so when you are brought to Rideau Hall for the uh, for the weekend, then first of all it really hits you. Until then, it's kind of abstract. Mm-hmm. But then when you're there and you see the way you're treated, basically like royalty, and you know the palace guards, so called, are are you know all around and making sure everything's happening the way it should, and and you meet all these other people and you realize you know they're brilliant in their own fields and they're you know, they're just lovely people. Often you're in groups together, you're standing in line, you know, a bus is taking you to Rideau Hall from the hotel, or you're all brought to the place where the banquet is, or whatever it was, you're you're with these people a lot. Right. Often they're saying, Okay, everyone's gonna line up here in this sequence, and when your name is called, you're gonna you're gonna enter the main room of Rideau Hall. So there are many opportunities to just be standing around chatting. And, you know, people from disciplines in, in medicine and, and science and, and it's just authors. It was great to, to meet them. And one or two I knew. And they said, oh, you're Great Laskin, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, and you're, yeah, right. And uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was a lifetime highlight. There's no question. They make you feel very, very special. And another interesting aspect of it is the, um, uh, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, one of their tasks, and, and it was um, Beverly McLaughlin. She was doing it, and one of the roles is they chair the meetings that decide. They chair the board that makes the decisions. So, and interestingly, at the banquet, you're told where you're going to sit and who will be at the table with you, and... And they ask you, what are your interests? What do you like to talk about? <laughs> so they make sure and sit people at the table okay. who may be of interest to you and vice versa, if they can, I suppose. But I was sat right next to Beverly McLaughlin. And I thought, why would she have wanted me to sit next to her? Because obviously that's what happened. Right. Sure enough, the first question out of her mouth was I related to Bora Laskin, who was our past chief justice. Right. And, and is still admired around the world, very progressive, a lot of great rulings. Um, and I am related to him, and that's what she wanted to find out. So we chatted a bit about that, and then uh, hardly had a conversation with her the rest of the meal. <laughs> she was talking with some other people at the table. And uh, so I realized that's what it was. But it was kind of neat that she, she wanted to do that. But the, the whole event, uh, yeah, you're honored, and you really feel it when when you're given the award i can imagine and and where did it take you to like when you received that award did you go back to a place and wonder how i got here um no i don't know if i did that per se um but i um it never would have occurred to me in a, in a million years to be even as something i would you know aspire to oh wouldn't it be great to have an order of candor <laughs> not at all um but where, you've won other awards yeah i was just going to say whereas other awards like the bronfman award um 
that's for craft, right. for craft excellence. That one I knew about, and I, and I had been nominated three times, and I was involved in the nomination as required. Right. They, they, get, they need information from me and stuff like that, and they say, we're going to nominate you. Would you be willing to go along with it? And third time lucky kind of thing. And that one was, I was nominated twice, including the successful time by the Ontario Crafts Council, now called Craft Ontario, but by an organization that I had been a part of. So it was kind of a double honor that an organization I volunteered for, you know, saw what I was up to, felt it worthy of someone they would nominate that year. And they nominated me twice. Wow. I got it. So, so this mainly because of your work in guitar making. Yeah. But before that, you were a musician or you had a love of music. Uh, yeah, both, actually. You're right. Um, I did. I mean, I've always played music, you know, uh, always, uh, since I basically age 14. How did that start? Uh, gee, well, I was a guitar player since I was nine years old. And um, so I always played guitar. And I think I wrote my first song at age 14. But somewhere around then, I started playing little clubs in Hamilton. And during high school, that's how I made my spending money, by playing the local clubs. And when I came to Toronto as a teenager, um, I uh, was working in a recording studio in Eastern Sound. Really? Yeah, I got a job as kind of the gopher, you know. Uh, that's I quit school, grade 13. I might as well tell you the story since that's what this yes. is about, all right? <laughs> since I can sense you're just about to ask me anyway. Um, when my parents went on vacation, Christmas time, when I was in grade 13. And for those who may not know, at the time, Ontario still had grade 13. No longer does. And many other provinces didn't, but they did at the time. And for those who wouldn't know, it also means if when there was a grade 13, to do a bachelor's at university was one year shorter. Because you've kind of done one of those years, kind of. It's kind of an in-between year, uh, but it's in the high school. Anyway, I was skipping out. I was bored skipping out of grade 13, going to the Hamilton Library and looking, or that was one thing I did, and that was looking through books of folk singers. You know, David Garr's photographs of all these well-known folk singers of the era and dreaming and wishing that I could be somebody like that. And uh, I was also sitting in to McMaster University first-year courses because I was reading a lot of the books, you know, philosophy and stuff like that, just out of interest. I thought, oh, wouldn't that be great? We're going to get into the meat of all this discussion. It's going to be great. And it turns out to be totally boring. You know, first year classes, a million people right. and, you know, just touching on the surface of things. I was so bored that, that uh, I realized, you know, this isn't for me, even though by then I'd already been accepted at two universities, York and U of T. Uh, which you were obligated to do in the first half of right. grade 13, you apply. And what were you applying for? Just general studies? Or? Yeah, I think it was just general <laughs> studies at the time. Anyway, I was accepted, but I thought, nah, this isn't for me. I don't think. So when my parents went on holiday, now back to the narrative, I quit school <laughs> when an aunt was looking after us, but she was supportive. Really? Yep, she was. She understood what I was doing. I quit school, uh, but first I, went, I hitchhiked to Toronto, got a job went to Eastern Sound only because it was a studio mentioned on the back of Bruce Coburn's first record. 
because early days they didn't you know it's not like nowadays where everything is credited right. whether it's on an album or on a film you brought a sandwich onto the set your name's going to be there <laughs> at the end right and same with records you know i borrowed this guitar from this person you know these are the instruments i play here's the studio here's the engineer you know the whole thing well in those days you didn't it wasn't the habit to do that uh, maybe the producer's name got mentioned that was about it but he mentioned where it was recorded and no one had told me that i could study engineering sound engineering like at Ryerson nobody told me so I had no idea I thought this is what I thought I wanted to do so I thought this is the biggest studio in town at the time it was the only 24 track in the city right but they had three studios um and uh they were big enough that I could get a job you know, as a, this teenage kid, this 17-year-old scruffy kid. As an apprentice? Did you get uh, paid? Well, basically or? a gopher to do whatever. Uh, I was doing... They did a lot of um, jingles, ad jingles. Right, right. And to get them out to the radio stations before the digital age, what you would do was high-speed dubbers. And you'd make quarter-inch little, little reels on quarter-inch copies right. of the ad and mail them to all the radio stations. And so there was a room with three or four high-speed dubbers, and I would run those and then double-check and make sure they were all getting the sound correctly and then pack them up and send them out to, you know, 100, 150 radio stations. That was one thing. I also learned to set up and tear down all the studios and to know what musicians wanted and stuff like that. And I met a lot of the jazz musicians who were the studio players in those days. Mo Kaufman, uh, Appleyard, Peter Appleyard on the Vibes, those kinds of people. They were really, really nice to this kid. They were really nice. In fact, sometimes they could say, you know what? I see you're busy. I'll get it. You, don't worry about me. You know, I'm good. <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. And I would tear down the studio and put it all back at the end. And a third job I had was running the 35 millimeter projector because they did sync sound there. And in those days, the only way it happened, project the film onto a screen that the conductor could see. The musicians are facing the conductor and he or she would look at the images and keep the sound going. And then it was my job to run the projector and make a dub of the soundtrack for, for the producer to listen to later. Well, when I left... Uh, I quit after about seven months. Uh, when, when I left, they hired three people to do what I was doing. Wow. And they were paying me, my take home was 45 bucks a week, enough to rent a room, to feed myself, and buy one album every, every week. <laughs> that was my first stop on payday on the way home. <laughs> stop at the record store and buy something. So... Um, I have to ask, how important was Bruce Coburn's music to you? Mm. Well, critical uh, in that way. I mean, I was a fan. Mm -hmm. uh, at 15, I hitchhiked to Toronto to hear him at the riverboat and didn't tell my parents where it was. <laughs> they would have freaked out. Um, that was the first show I saw at the riverboat when I was still living in Hamilton. Um, but then the record. And then I even met Bernie. When I worked at Eastern Sound, his offices were was one block away. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And so I went and gave him a tape of my stuff in case he'd be interested in the songs I was writing and stuff. You know, he was very nice. It was not worthy. The songs, there might have been one or two that were not bad, you know, but, but a bunch that, you know, best left 
in the garbage heap, but he was really kind to me. He didn't just tell me I was, you know, you know, useless. And he said, oh, this is some good stuff here. Now there's some playing that sounds a bit like Bruce. You've been listening to Bruce, you know, but yeah, now keep at it, you know, and let me know. He was, he, he dropped me very gently. <laughs> it was very nice. And you know what? And we've been friends ever since. He's a very when, nice when man. we started Borealis, I met with him and picked his brain and he was very supportive and all the way through we're having troubles, you know, if, do you have a better distributor in, in Germany than the one we've been using? Or what would you do in this situation when we've got an artist doing this and we're not, you know, sure. And he's a, a lovely man. I've had limited dealings with him, but I just found him to be a lovely man as yeah, well. Yeah. Is it, was it uncommon for somebody who is, who you could consider a competitor running another record label to be that sharing of information? You know, I, I find here in Canada, it is pretty much normal because we're all doing different genres, right. you know, we're focused on different things. And uh, uh, I never got a sense from anybody that they wouldn't answer any question. He wasn't the only one whose brain we picked. Right. Other people were, well, yeah, come on over. I'm going to sit you down. I'm going to tell you, here's where you should go to do this. And what you really have to watch is this and make sure you take, you know, those kinds of comments and, and support. Anytime we asked. Wow. So what made you quit Eastern Sound after seven months? Um, I, was, I was there because of music, but I was tired of the ad people. It wasn't my world. I mean, I met some other people. I met, um, oh, the Good Brothers were there. Um, um, Murray McLaughlin came by. Um, oh, uh, all of a sudden I'm blanking out on her name. I'm bad with names when I need them. Um, but are you playing yourself at this point? Uh, yeah, I was playing on the side. Sorry, I was trying to remember that name. Maybe I will later. Um, and it be, it, I just got tired of the work and the people. And so I quit. And I was just playing music for a few months and living on the couch of a friend. And he's actually uh, Bill Houston, the guy who wrote uh, Ojibwe Country, the song in okay. North of Superior, the right, first right. IMAX film. Yeah, yeah. I met him because I was at Eastern Sound at that time. And here was this young guy down from the north, you know, from Sioux Lookout. He didn't know Toronto much, but he was going to stay for a while. And he rented a, you know, nothing special apartment. And he was willing to let me just crash on the couch for a while. And I ended up meeting all the IMAX people because this was all new stuff for them. Wow. You know, it was the first film. They were just getting going and they were all struggling to pay the bills. And in fact, uh, one person who became one of the directors, Doug, no, Dave Douglas, I think, I think is his name, um, who helped build the first camera. Uh, he became a director like Fires of Kuwait and a few others like that were his babies. Mm-hmm. But he and the wife of the guy who invented it, uh, Graham Ferguson, but I forget his wife's name, oh, Phyllis, Phyllis somebody, um, they needed some spare money and they were making short films for CBC to be used as fillers when shows would end before the hour. Mm-hmm. And they needed, you know, three or four minutes to fill. And they just wanted stuff ready, and they ended up making me the subject of one um, and filmed me at my shop and kind of filmed me going through the basics of a guitar. Anyway, I got to know all those folks. Um, But back to your question, I then stumbled onto the book. Um, You might... How old are you, Marco? 60. You see, okay, so you might remember this. I'm a little older than you, but there was the, the Whole Earth Catalog. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that mm-hmm. from those era? And then there was the Canadian version of the Whole Earth Catalog. Right. And in the Canadian version that I picked up at the Toronto Folklore Centre, 
um, there was this article about instrument makers in Vancouver. And me being the naive teenager that I was at that time, 17 years old, I thought, well, why don't I just hitchhike out to BC and go to their door and, and maybe I'll start working with them. <laughs> As if, right? Well, who knows? Well, but yeah. That was my thought. Next thing I know, I'm in the Folklore Center and they showed me a guitar made by this guy named Larave, who was just getting going. And I looked at this guitar and it was so beautifully made. I remember to this day, holding it in my hand, holding it the way you would hold it to play. And I'm looking at the headstock where after the kink, it's called the headstock where right. the tuners are. And I could see that he glued a darker wood veneer, maybe it was rosewood, to the mahogany of the neck. And I'm looking where the two pieces meet and I couldn't see a line. I just saw one wood end and the next wood begin. And I had no concept of how you accomplish that. Like, how come I don't see glue? Like, how is that even humanly possible? I was so impressed <laughs> that um, next thing, you know, uh, a week later is the Mariposa Festival. And there's John Larave showing his wares in the craft section of the Mariposa Festival for the first time. So I walked over and, and said, you know, I introduced myself and said, saw one of your guitars and how knocked out it was. Do you ever take on apprentices? And in that time, it was before he understood of the need for climate control. So in the humid months of the summer, he just wouldn't build. Right. You wouldn't glue up anything because it would fall apart in the dry winter. So he said, when I get started again, you know, late September, um, come by and we'll give it a shot. And after a few months, if it's not working out, I'll tell you. What I didn't know, what opened the door a crack and talk about total luck. John Larivee was going through a divorce. And it's because he changed his career from being a, a licensed car mechanic to being a guitar maker. And his wife did not want that lifestyle. Right? So they were in the midst. He was on his own now. And he met Eric Nagler, who started the Toronto Folklore Center. He was a draft dodger from New York right. who wanted to create something like, like Izzy Young had done in New York City, the New York Folklore Center. It was basically everything, acoustic instruments, lessons, uh, meetings, a real hub of the community is how it was. And so John met him and he offered to John, look, we've got a third floor, There's, it's empty. If you wanna just crash there until you figure your life out, go for it. So he did. He was living literally a piece of foam on a piece of plywood upstairs of the Folklore Center on Avenue Road, just north of DuPont in an old house. And uh, that's where he was when I met him. And he said, uh, what I didn't know was that Eric Nagler was trying to talk John into becoming a bit of a guitar production shop. He was just solo at this point. Mm -hmm. And he was only a classical guitar maker. That's all he knew. He was a classical guitar player, met Edgar Munch, a classical guitar builder, who offered to show him how to make one because he couldn't afford a good one for his own, and that got him started. He hadn't even heard of Martin guitars <laughs> at that point. Right. So uh, Eric was trying to talk him into becoming a bit of a... a production steel string guitar place right so he was pushing him to do it so little did i know a guy named sergey de young had met john before me and was just hanging around his suburban house in the basement just basically drinking beer and watching him work <laughs> right and uh and 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 then eric said and look i need to get somebody to do repairs i'm going to bring up this guy from this guitar 
uh, manufacture in the States from, from Mossman Guitars. He's going to come up. He'll do halftime repairs for me and halftime he could work for you. So there was that guy, Serge, who he was now going to get doing some work, and this scruffy teenager at Mariposa in front of him. So he said, okay, come on along. Within two months, and I did come along, within two months, Serge left to work with another experimental guitar maker elsewhere in the province. The guy up from Mossman, all he did was smoke his pipe and talk all day and did almost nothing. So John was fed up with him and said, you can do whatever you want for the Folklore Center, but you're not working for me anymore. And I remember him sitting down with me and this woman, Wendy, who he was going out with and saying, you're the only two people I get along with. So that's what it's going to be. So after that, it was just he and I for the rest of two years until the last six months. I'm jumping forward a bit here. When David Wren came at night after his day job as a graphic artist. And when I left John to set up my own shop, David quit his job, started working with John. But so I'm the only one who had like a year and three quarters, just me and John. Nobody else has had that one-on-one -on -one experience with him. And uh, what a what a gift, really. So I, did, at what point did you know that this was something worth pursuing, making guitars? Mm. You know, Marco, it didn't take long. Right away, I was so high and excited about everything I was doing. Are you sure it wasn't the glue? <laughs> no, no. But literally, I remember I was high for two years that's not even healthy <laughs> you know <laughs> not even to have a down day i mean on weekends i do gigs now you have to know the first year john didn't pay me at all right but i thought hey i'm getting my education for free i don't have to pay a university tuition all i need to do is is rent my room so i do gigs on the you know on we work seven days a week but at night i'd go play okay so how much how important was your musical career at that point not no i mean it was i was enjoying everything i was having fun but i realized being a professional full-time musician was not a goal of mine oh but i loved playing and learning and at the same time as getting to know john i was getting involved with the fiddler's green bunch and teaching myself other instruments besides guitar banjo mandolin dulcimer all the stuff used in american traditional music did that come easy to you yeah, yeah, one at a time. In fact, I remember even Tam Kearney from Fiddler's Green showing me some stuff on the banjo, and then I bought a mandolin, and you know, it, one thing after another. I just wanted to learn everything. I was, I was just having so much fun. <laughs> it was so great, and hanging around at the club and becoming sort of part of the house band there, and and friends of Fiddler's Green. But even when it wasn't a friends of Fiddler's Green, if it was Tam and I, we'd open the club every night. And do a few numbers just to warm the audience up and act silly and get them laughing and and then get the feature performer on. But you never thought that, that becoming a full-time musician was no, a no, goal? No, not at this point. Once I got hooked in guitar making, nah. Even though it was my dream for a while. If I may jump back mm -hmm. and insert one sidebar to part of the story I told you. When I would go to the library when I was skipping out of high school... And looking at these longingly at these pictures of these well-known performers at festivals and stuff, and all shot by this guy named David Garr, who was famous at the time, right? Photographing musicians. I saw under the knee, underneath or the caption to the picture of Roger McGuinn from The Birds. He said he learned his music at the Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago. 
I saw that and I went, that's where I want to go. I have found my post-secondary education, you know, my location. So I went to the, the guidance counselor and of course she's going through this, you know, four inch thick book of post-secondary, couldn't find it. So I wrote a letter, talk about naive, I'll tell you. I don't know, how, how am I still here? <laughs> anyway, I wrote a letter, Old Town School of Folk Music, Chicago, USA. That's all I do. And they got it. Well, I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it's a, But it's no a, postal code, no exact address, no nothing. But, but it's they pretty got well it. known. You know, it is, I yeah. guess, you know, and they got it. And they wrote back. There's two parts to the, to, the, to the sequence of it. They wrote back, first of all, to say, sorry, we aren't a post-secondary full-time. You know, we are just like a, 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 a part-time school. Yeah. Kind of like the Folklore Center, right? But they also put on concerts. And nowadays they have their own venue and blah, blah, blah. But so, okay, so that was disappointing. But then years later, when the Friends of Fiddler's Green were playing Chicago, we, after the, after the show, we all went back to the, the house of this woman named Emily Friedman, who was the editor of one of the other folk magazines in North America at the time called Come For To Sing. She edited that for many years until her full-time profession was a medical writer or something. But anyway... We were at her house, and all of a sudden, she starts telling a story. You won't believe it. It's this funny thing. You, know, you guys are from Canada, but all of a sudden, I was at the old town school one day when this letter arrived from this kid in Canada, and it didn't even have our address, and I'm sitting there in the couch, and I'm trying to hide, you know, trying to sink into the cushions. Oh, my God, that was me. That's I, I had to admit it, you know, and we had a big laugh over that. I couldn't believe uh, that it came up. Anyway. <laughs> Back to the narrative. So um, at that time, I had thought I wanted to be a full-time performer. That was my goal. But then once I got hooked, guitar making, and I will tell you, I always had a love of woodworking, but never really pursued it much other than summer camp or something like that. Because I don't know about nowadays, but in on my era, maybe yours too, they would stream you in high school. Mm -hmm. Either you're going to go to university, so you're in the five-year stream when grade 13 was there, or, you know, vocational, right. four-year. And the four years, they got to do woodworking and work on cars and electricity and wiring. And, you know, they got to do all the fun stuff. But no, we were the intellectuals, you know. And we were going to go to university, so I missed it. But so I always loved woodworking. When you... When you worked with Jean and started making guitars, I like I automatically think this is not an easy thing to do. Was making a guitar easy to you? No, no. I mean, it's not. Um, but it's just a series of steps. Right. And the advantage of being an apprentice is you learn how long it takes to do each step well. If you were on your own, you'd think, geez, I have been at this for five hours and it still looks crappy. I'm obviously useless. But you don't know that a professional takes two days to do that right. properly. Well, you learn that when you apprentice. And John's standards were incredibly high. Superb workmanship, as was Edgar Munch. So that's what John learned. But I will say that's John's attitude to things anyway. When he wrote his exams to be a licensed mechanic, he got the highest marks in the province. Wow. He's just really good at technical stuff, which also made sense that he would have the innate sensibility of how to tool up to be a bigger manufacturer, which is what he became. When you decided to go out on your own, at this point, do you think, I can make a living making guitars? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Now, the second year with John, he would give me money when I needed it, you know, for right. rent on my room or something. 
Um, but yeah, when I was going to leave him, before I even bought a tool, I had three orders. People knew I was leaving him. They saw the work I was doing. I mean, in the second year I was with John, just the two of us, we built 60 guitars together. Wow. And John even said to me, look, you're building half these guitars. Your name should be on the label too. 12 of those 60 times we remembered for me to sign the label before <laughs> we glued it over the reinforcing strip on the center. Right. And once you've glued it over that ridge, how do you, how do you write on it? You know? um, and I know where three or four of those guitars are but not all 12. But someday when John and I are both gone, I think they'll be worth a lot of money to somebody somewhere. Wow. Uh, so Paul Stuckey from Peter, Paul, and Mary had one uh, until he just played it so many years, it just fell apart. So how important was that to make sure that your guitar, whatever you built, whether, let's say when you went out on your own, mm. how important was it to have a guitar of yours played by somebody who is famous? Ah, you know, it's nothing I ever consciously cared about the way manufacturers might. Oh, we've got to get some endorsies, you know, or we've got to move these babies, right? Um, I never even thought about it. But because I was playing music, whether solo, and I was playing a lot more mm -hmm. in those years, those decades, actually, the early decades, uh, whether it's with the Friends of Feathers Green or as a duo with Ian Robb or just solo gigs or playing with other friends, whatever, you know, um, I was just doing a lot more playing and I'd be at folk festivals, you know, every summer I'd be at you know, four or five festivals, uh, either playing or just attending. And I'd be backstage. And if you are playing there, oh, that your guitar sounded great in that workshop. Can I try it? Oh, you made it? Yeah. You mind if I try it? You know, next thing you know, orders were happening. <laughs> I was getting orders left and right from the folky community that I was in. And, uh, and that's where Stan Rogers happened. And then that turned out to be one of those key sales to somebody well-known right. who was established or became very well-known. And, um, and it, to this day, even though Stan has been gone decades, it's, it still comes up when people are considering order from, ordering from me. Well, I remember Stan's guitars and they sounded so good. You know, and are you still building? Yeah, yeah, what are your prices? That still happens. Wow. But I will tell you one interesting thing about Stan and guitars. Even though, yes, when uh, a manufacturer or somebody gets endorsed by a well-known player and they put them in print ads and stuff like that, that's one thing. And I'm sure it helps. Uh, but with Stan, he would come back from tours with deposits for orders for my guitars from other people. <laughs> Because they'd come up to him at afterwards, you know, or backstage or something and, and say, your guitar sounded amazing. Is it? Yeah, yeah, well, it was made by Great Alaska. Oh, really? Could, would he sell to anybody? You know, he would take their name, address, get a check for the deposit and bring it back to me. No other builder I know has had that experience from anyone. He's like a traveling salesman. Yeah. And it got to be I, like, I didn't I hardly knew how to react. I was laughing. I said, Stan, this is crazy. You know, so at one point I said, okay, look. Every time you do that, that's 5% off the next, next instrument you want from me. And in the end, he died too soon to make good on it. But, you know, his wife, Ariel, remembered that. She said, you know, his guitars need some work. Can I have you just do the work and we'll call that a trade? I said, well, of course, I would have done it anyway. But yes, fine. But you also played with him and recorded with yeah, him, did you know? Yeah, So I which did. came first, your, your relationship as a luthier or your relationship as a musician that, that wound up 
um, that you got yeah, to record with it them? actually, as a musician first. Okay. On the first record, uh, Fogarty's Cove, his first album. Yeah, I played a bunch of instruments. Um, at the time, though, I hadn't yet joined the Musicians Union. And so they technically weren't allowed to be playing with me or recording with me. That's why on the back of the first record, it says, I am down as the masked luthier of DuPont Street playing a tenor mandolin and guitar made by Grit Laskin. That's what it says on the first album. You know, so I'm the masked luthier, which is why Stan wanted my first album, which I did for his label, to be called Unmasked. That was his idea. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's where it came from. So but anyway, I did join the union. So when you recorded that first album, what were your hopes for that album and your musical career? Oh, gee. Uh, to me, it was just, it was a, a, a session with, you know, a session gig with, with a, a, an artist I admired. Really, that's all it was at the time. And I was happy to be doing it and enjoyed it. But um, I was building guitars then. I was working with John. Wait a minute, 76? Yeah, no, I was on my own. Uh, but but it was around then that Stan decided to order the first guitar. But it, but the sequence was me as a musician first. Okay, so when we worked on the um, group of seven guitar makers, yeah. when you, I got the opportunity to work on that project, not every guitar maker plays music or right. are right. musicians. I guess they all play guitar, but... <clears throat> How important is it was it for you to be a, a decent musician who plays m- multiple instruments ah. to your guitar making? Yeah, yeah, that is a good question, and it it is important, and I think it helped sales because people could relax knowing that I am a player, and I'm not going to let anything leave the shop if it's not going to work and do its job properly. So they took some confidence from that, right? And and sometimes they'd be they would say it you know so i knew they were thinking that it wasn't just my assumption but so yeah so it helped <clears throat> okay so you have this piece of wood you put it together and it's a guitar now yeah. how do you know that it's going to give you the sound that you want and over okay. the years obviously that sound probably changes or your yeah. whatever your technology is in making guitars probably changed and matured and grew but how did you did you was there a point where you thought I've got it now. I know this is the sound that I want for my guitar. Or does it work that way? <laughs> uh, yeah, it, okay. It's a big question, which I will answer. Um, first of all, you're always working on that. The carrot of the perfect sounding guitar is always just out of reach, right? But you're going for it. And you're but, but you know you're close to it? Yes. And it does take time because you're working with natural materials, no two pieces are exactly the same. I mean, even the next cuts off the board from a bandsaw, the grain is moving fractionally different and who knows what else is in the fibers there. So it's not gonna respond precisely the same every time. Um, what, so you need a, a lot of work under your belt so that you've just experienced a variety of materials and a variety of combinations of materials so that you can begin to make intelligent guesses on what's likely to happen when you combine this wood with that wood, with this scale length, with those dimensions, etc. And so it's a never-ending pursuit. But how long did it take you to get to that point where it was within reach? 
I'd say a decade at least. Okay, so the other thing is, if I'm not mistaken, you build a guitar, the way it sounds today is different than it will 15 years from now. Oh, yeah, for sure. Can you predict that? Do you have oh, any idea? Uh, yeah, in some, to some degree, um, because it's consistent across all wooden instruments. If the wood is vibrated, the cell structure will settle and align itself differently than if it's just this table sitting still. Right. And if it's constantly vibrated, then it becomes, the cell structure moves in a position that makes it more efficient to do what it seems to be called upon to do so frequently. And how you sense that uh, is two, two major categories of ways. One, responsiveness. Uh, uh, the way I could describe it is, well, the whole sound of an instrument, uh, or certainly a guitar, begins with the energy from your plucking hand, right? Mm -hmm. That's the beginning of the energy that drives the whole thing. And over time, when an instrument has developed, you'll find that less energy gives you the same output or equal energy gives you more. It's becoming more sensitive. It's becoming adapted to vibrating and more efficient at vibrating. You know, instruments that last a long time, like the boat instrument family that generally lasts longer than guitars, just the way they have to be constructed. Um, my God, I, I can remember standing next to a bass, a stand-up bass that was 125 years old. And just talking to somebody next to it, you could hear it echoing like responding to the sound vibrations just from the voice. It was so sensitive. You could feel it vibrating just from the sounds in the room. And that wouldn't be that way at the beginning. Right. But all wooden instruments, it happens. And other things happen. Uh, the resins crystallize. Uh, the finish crystallizes and, and becomes more flexible. Um, but if you don't vibrate, if you don't play it, if it doesn't get vibrated, it won't change has to be played which is why i say to people who say oh your guitars always seem to pick up value which is true all of my used guitars sell for more than people paid for them that's pretty consistent and more power to them mm -hmm. but um if they're not played they're not going to hold up that value yeah they may look perfect there isn't a scratch on them but they haven't developed right they haven't become what they're there to do so was there ever a period where you tried something because you always looking for new ideas always and then it totally failed uh, <laughs> like you tried yes. to use some wood that might have been different and as a matter of fact it did happen one time I learned a good lesson um, on a class a pair of classical guitars I copied the inner bracing from a Spanish manufacturer called Ramirez one of the biggest names in classical right. guitars out of Spain I copied their bracing pattern entirely and it was they were the worst classical guitars I've made in my career. And my problem was pulling something out of context. That you, you must keep a holistic view of this thing you're building. Because every single aspect of it affects how it's going to respond. You pluck a string and even the buttons on the tuners are vibrating. Everything's vibrating. Mm -hmm. And... It's being perceived by the listener by this entire object vibrating and moving the molecules of the air until finally they hit your eardrum. 
And so it isn't the sound hole, it isn't alone, it isn't this, it isn't that, it's the whole thing. Obviously, some parts play a bigger role than others, but everything plays a role. I mean, there are people who embed weights in the neck because it adds sustain. You know, there's all kinds of things that are done, not just in how you construct, but, but the thicknesses of the wood, the bracings, the different species, the dimensions, the scale lengths, the height of the bridge, you know, how far are the strings away from the top and the neck, all this stuff, it all affects the sound. And where is the perfect sound? Is it for the player's perspective yeah. or is it the audience's perspective? Oh, I think it's the player's perspective. Okay. And as you may know, no two people hear the same way. Right. Because right? it's not just, it's physiological as well as psychological, what we bring to hearing. And that's actually a positive thing because it means there's room for all kinds of instrument makers because no two makers are going to produce exactly the same kind of results no two players want the same things so you're basically i'm building a guitar that satisfies me that i feel i'm building the best guitar sound that there should be but it's my taste and it isn't everyone's taste and i know that and that's fine some people like this kind of sound. They want a little more percussive. They want a little more this, a little more that. I, whatever body size I'm making, whatever type of guitar, a steel string, a classical, a flamenco, whatever it is, I'm looking for certain universal qualities. You need power, of course. You need balance between the bass and treble. You need, and then you get to the quality of the tone. And I like something that's a little more rounder, a little more mature, a little sweeter. I don't like the edgy stuff. And yet that's because of crappy pickups. A lot of young people think that's the sound of guitars nowadays, Hmm. but it's not really. It's the sound of a bad guitar, in my opinion. (laughs) But you know, that's my taste. And I attract the people who are drawn to that kind of sound. They've either heard it or played one or heard somebody whose opinion they value say, this is what it does and why I love these Laskin guitars. So they wouldn't come to you and say, I'm looking for this particular sound. Can you do it? Not usually. No. No, usually they're coming because they want one of mine and then we just get into the many variables of of what they need. But I do ask there's all these conversations. It's a very intense personal thing. It's not just a simple transaction. Uh, which is one thing I love about it. You develop a relationship with your customers because we have long talks about the kind of music they play and how they play. Are you always finger picking? Are you flat picking? Do you hit heavy? You know, And what are you looking for? What, what are the guitars you own now not delivering for you? And whether it's sound issues, ergonomic issues, aesthetic things, we get into all of those conversations even before we get to inlay art, which is purely subjective. Okay, so inlay art, which is something you're known very much for right. and your beautiful work. How did that begin? How did you decide that you wanted to put in inlay art into your guitars? Well, I mean, I learned it because it's, it's traditional. Some basic inlays in Mother of Pearl and Abalone have been used on guitars for centuries, right? right. More than centuries. And, uh, and so you learn. We learn how to cut a piece of shell and do simple designs you know, as part of an apprenticeship. Um, but it was when I was on my own, I slowly began looking at, you know, oh, maybe I could do a face. I could do a human face, uh, but I've got to engrave it, and I didn't know how to engrave. 
Um, so I got some books. They were about metal engraving, and uh, it wasn't doing it for me. No, I, I can't hit the guitar with and chase the graver with a hammer the way they do it. I can't, no, that's not going to work. So I bought a whole bunch of gravers, the tools, the little hand tools that you cut with right. of different shapes and tried a bunch. Some would really chip out the shell, and then I found one shape that didn't chip it out that much, different than metal engraving. And I, okay, this could work. And then I tried different ways of pushing it and holding it, and I ended up developing my own grip on the tool that I teach because I was just I had to figure it out for myself now my first engraving lines I call them hesitant scratches that's what they looked like they weren't confident bold solid clean lines that took time but once I got there I tried doing a face and it was literally just a face with hair a woman's face or something pretty simple um and that got me excited that I could do something like that. But that was, I've been on my own for a number of years by then, like at least at least three or four years. And then I remember sitting in my workshop um, at lunch, reading through a book on the art of Maxfield Parrish, you know, the American illustrator, mm -hmm. you know, early 20th century. And I get to one of his illustrations. He had a sense of humor. They were all kind of wacky characters sometimes. And there were these humorous characters uh, approaching the king. But the body language of one looked like they were walking. And all of a sudden, I got this image of that character walking onto the headstock of the guitar. And that's at its widest. It's, you know, it's three inches, right. you know, and it's about seven inches long. That little space. I almost saw it as like the viewfinder of a camera and some action was moving into view. And I thought, huh, I've never seen that on the guitar. Maybe as long as I, I don't have him fully there, but coming in from the side, people would get the visual clues that he's in motion, you know, and then the body language would show it, things like that. So I did that and that was a revelation to me. All of a sudden I realized, oh, this is just a blank canvas. Anything could happen here. It doesn't have to be just the traditional uh, swirly florals or winged creatures or a dragon or some birds or something that was done in guitars uh, or banjos as well. So not just decorative stuff. Um, and that was the beginning of a changed v how I viewed it. And that it just has never stopped from then. Does that affect the sound of the guitar? No. But that's why I'll only inlay on the neck primarily. I won't inlay the top, which would affect the sound because you're putting this dense uh, uh, material into something that is not as dense and you're going to interrupt the way it vibrates. Occasionally, under duress, I've done some inlay on the backs, but minor, not a lot. And that doesn't usually affect much. But I'm doing it into the ebony of the fretboard, which is just, uh, you know, they, you want dense material to resist the wear of the fingers. Uh, it plays some role in the sound, but I'm not affecting it in any perceivable degree because I mean laying it into the densest wood on the instrument. When I look at your guitars and some of the, the artwork that you've put into these inlays, it's, it's stunning. And it looks like a lot of work. Thank you. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's one thing in building a beautiful guitar and, and, and making it sound great. But to add that element to it, and I don't know if you break it down and say, I can make a guitar in X number of days, but to do the inlays is going to be X number of days as well. Like, yeah. Are there times when your inlays take longer than the actual guitar? It has happened. Yes, it has. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but um, but yeah, for me, a guitar. Uh, uh, well, let me explain. My own personal way of working, I work in pairs. Right. I have two guitars in finishing, another pair being constructed, and another pair being prepped. And as soon as the ones that are being constructed go into finishing, and the ones that were in finishing get their final sanding and get completed, then they move behind them, and the next pair moves up, etc., etc. So I'm always working on those pairs, and any pair takes nine months to go through the wow. process from me joining the, the two pieces that each make up the top and the back. They're kind of bookmatched pieces joined. And I just do that. And then for a couple of months, they, they get a loaf air fan. And what that does, they're long ago dry moisture-wise, but this begins to crystallize the resins, which will help for sound. There's other techniques of doing that where people cook the woods, uh, but you have to do that before they're joined. And I don't have a stove at my shop, so I don't cook it. Um, but on low heat for a day, and the, but now, actually, sidebar, I guess, there's something called torrefaction, which is the term given to doing that to woods. And now you can even buy some that are pre-done that way. Anyway, so it takes all those months. But to get back to your question, but the inlay is, I never repeat the art. Right. Uh, well, I mean, I have my files. If the guitar was ruined or lost or something and I had to rebuild it, I could do it. But generally, I don't. So it's always starting with a blank page and coming up with a drawing and doing research, etc., And uh, all by hand, I don't use CAD, I use a pencil on paper and, and that's how I do it. And the cutting is by hand and the engraving is by hand. There's no machines here other than a tiny little router for routing out the, the grooves that you inset the inlay into. I, you, I presume you're a good artist. Well, I've learned. I was, had no training whatsoever, but there was some innate ability there. Uh, two of my sisters painted, and I have a memory in grade seven, maybe? Or was it six? Maybe maybe grade six, where we all, uh, a student was stood at the front of the class, and we were all supposed to draw her, and mine was the only one that looked like her. <laughs> Apparently, the teacher was so proud and pinned it up. I've never forgotten that, you know? All, these are the high points of your life. <laughs> And the Order of Canada. Yeah. Well, okay. All right. So two, right? Anyway, but um, so there was something there, but I never, I never pursued it. Um, but then what really helped was a book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, a phenomenal book about drawing and, and understanding brain hemispheres. And it was my wife, Judith, who knew about it from education. She turned me on to it. And I worked my way through half of that book, and it was a revelation to me and really helped my drawing skills. And I even use some of her exercises when I teach. I sometimes teach inlay and engraving. And um, so it's evolved over the years and I've got better at drawing for sure. But so you said it's like a nine month circle, a cycle. Right. If you didn't do the inlay artwork as extensive as you yeah. did, you do, would it be seven months? <laughs> uh, well, Part of it, uh, I will admit, part of it is like at least two and a half months is that is just sitting right. after the last coats of finish. And then for some time before that, you know, some weeks before that is layering the coats of lacquer on stuff like that, letting them dry for a couple of weeks. You sand, you spray some more. But I like it to dry for a long time. Let the wood, the finish seep, seep, seep into the wood, into the pores, so that when you sand it the final time, it's smooth, perfectly smooth, but matte, and then you buff a shine out of it like polishing cars. 
That's how it's done. But in guitars, there's the tradition of a gloss finish, unlike violins that have a tradition of a more earthy feel by the way they hand brush the varnish. Um, but the difficulty is it's got to be a smooth gloss, but thin, or you're putting too much mass on the instrument and you're going to hamper its ability to vibrate. Right. And so you look at the kind of finish and what kind of solids it leaves behind, how much mass will be there. There's a rule in guitar finishing. If you aren't afraid of sanding or polishing through edges, corners, points, then you have too much finish on. You have to be in fear all the time. And that's how you know. <laughs> and that keeps you on your toes and you make sure, oh, don't lean heavy on this corner. You're right at the edge. And you could literally melt your way through the finish from the heat of the polishing compounds back down to the wood. And believe me, we've all done it. And then you have to touch it up. And then you have the issues of a finish that has already chemically cross-linked and and coating it is going to leave a kind of ghosting at the edge where the new finishes on top. It won't just sink right in anymore. You know, there's all these issues on guitars. It's not like cars where they just cook it on and two days later, your car's been refinished. You know, you can't do that on guitars. Have you made the perfect guitar at all yet? No, no such thing. No. You not aim for it? I've, I, I make damn good instruments. I'm very proud of them. And they generally impress my customers more than they were expecting. So knock on some wood. But, uh, and then that's separate even from the inlay. I'm just talking about how they sound, how they look. Um, but back to your question about the time for the inlay work. To do what I call a full narrative. And, and for me, there always needs to be a narrative arc. I look for the story. I don't just want to decorate these instruments. I want to be saying something within the theme I'm being given and all the discussions I've had with with the customer on what's important to them about the theme so that guides me and I love that so I'm really an illustrator you know 80% of the time and I'm illustrating you know the theme that they want done but they let me run with it how I do it what I show after we've talked for a long time um, but that I was going to say a full narrative taking up the whole neck you know could be 100 to 150 hours of work. And that's what it takes to build a guitar, too. Wow. Um, in addition to building these amazing guitars and playing music, although I, I'm, I get the feeling that you don't, you're not playing as much these days. Not as much, but the band Friends of Fiddler's Green still does a few concerts a year. And I do some lectures and playing as part of it. Right. I do a show. In fact, I just got to go up to the Halliburton School of the Arts to do it in the summer. Uh, I call it, give me wood and I'll make it sing for you. And I did it at the McMichael. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and when the show was on, that was the final event there where it's kind of a three-parter. I do a talk for half an hour about instruments, how an instrument maker gets music out of the box, not just sound. And all kinds of misnomers are explained about sound holes and how they work and why the grain of the top runs this way and why we don't use Brazilian rosewood anymore and all those kinds of things. And then I show slides of my inlay work uh, and talk about them as we go, what, what the story was or anything interesting about that project. And then the third part is me just playing some music. That's uh, what it's all about. So I have four handmade instruments and I do some numbers on each one, play for half an hour. Uh, Northumbrian pipes, concertina, and the guitar and a tenor mandolin that I made. Okay, so I was going to say, 
beyond that, you also run a record company. Ah, uh, yeah, okay, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so how did Borealis come about? Uh, it was my idea. Um, you know, I had been on Stan Rogers' label, mm-hmm. and I had a new album of stuff recorded, but then Stan died. And I thought, well, you know, I don't play full-time. Who's going to sign me, right? I even spoke to a U.S. label, and they said, you know, great, we know your music. You've toured down here, but... Uh, but if we released it, we, we're, we're, we've got release schedules for the next two years. I don't know when we'll get this out. Why don't you go to somebody in Canada? And then I realized there was nobody at that time. Um, so I, got, I talked to Ken Whiteley, and I talked to Paul Mills, and I talked to Bill Garrett, and I said, what do you think about starting our own label you know, for folk music in Canada? And we talked about it for a year. Every Tuesday night at my house, we'd get together and we'd talk through how we could do it, how we could make it better for the artist, but still hopefully be viable. And what should we do? And then we just did. And we got a few small investors. And with $90,000, we started a little record company. Now, two year, we were all working. It was all volunteer right. for the four of us. And two years in, both Ken and Paul were feeling badly because they couldn't they were so busy they couldn't keep up their end of obligations so they pulled out they were technically still owners but weren't involved anymore so ever since after the first two years it's been bill and i running it so tell me what that what you get out of that oh aside from the fact that i still draw nothing from it and and you know give it i don't know you know 15 20 hours a week sometimes depending mm-hmm. on what's needed um, just the satisfaction of supporting musicians who you admire and people of integrity who you enjoy hanging out with and being supportive and we wanted to cover all the range of musics under the big folk banner right. including the traditional stuff that's more obscure and maybe it's not going to sell much but it's important that this record gets out and let these other ones, these touring acts that are really selling a lot from stage or, you know, we have better sales with, let them subsidize these projects and stuff like that. So it's the satisfaction of working with a lot of talented, great people and being doing whatever you can to support them. Okay, so the world of music, the mu- music business has changed drastically oh. in the last 10 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. How has that affected your your business as borealis it's tough for everybody there's no question mm-hmm. and um, we've had to work twice as hard just to stay in the same place and uh happily maybe two three years ago the digital side folkies started to pick up on the digital side they were this niche was behind other genres other niches never mind and they were we were all collectively behind pop music right right and or whatever is the flavor of the day it's still hip-hop is sort of the reigning style at the moment um so but there's still a fan base out there so it just became our challenge to connect to that fan base and keep reminding them that we're here and here's the music we're putting out whether it's the djs who play the music uh or direct sales to people um so we keep trying but um you know, streaming at the moment is the only growth part in music. Right. All sales, even digital, are dropped dramatically month to month. And digital is now tapering off now too. Streaming is the big one and streaming is the part that pays so little to everybody. 
it really isn't fair. I hope one day, whether by legislation or by moral suasion, they change and pay more. Because the people, like the, the guy who owns Spotify, I mean, he's a billionaire. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, you get paid 0.003 of a penny every time someone streams one of your songs. So if you're a pop star and you have millions upon millions of streams, you get some nice checks each month. But I've never forgotten a couple of things. One time when I read an interview with Roseanne Cash, Johnny Cash's daughter, who I admire, great mm-hmm. musician. She's sort of, she's not like super big superstar, but she's in that middle level of somebody known and sells up. You know, like her albums would sell 50,000 copies, no problem. Right. She said, you know, she gets a check, you know, for streaming her monthly income. She can have tens of thousands of streams or whatever. And she gets a check for $147. And then on Borealis, one of our biggest acts, Le Vent du Nord from Quebec, um, they they might have, you know, seven or 8,000 streams in a reporting period. And, you know, we get a check for 70 bucks. It's just stupid. It is stupid. It's really bad. And it's it's having an effect, as I'm sure it is in other disciplines. Anything that can be digitized. For you guys, it could be films, right? Mm-hmm. And anything that can be digitized is paying the price. Um, and... Uh, I hope things change, but a lot of musicians are thinking twice about being in the biz. Well, it's hard to justify yeah. recording, going into a recording studio and spending money yeah. that you might never see. Well, that's it. You know, people think, oh, God, I can buy a CD, you know, when they were, when it was CDs only. Yeah. Oh, geez, I can get a package of CDRs at Shoppers, you know, and they, they, they end up being, you know, 90 cents each. Why am I paying $16, right? But it's because of the cost of recording right. and marketing and paying the designer to do the package. And they just don't think that way or not enough people think that way and realize how difficult it is. And, you know, even a folky record, 10000 you know, to record it, mix it, you know, pay for the cover art. That's low end. And how are they going to make that money back? Yeah, unless they're constantly touring. Yeah, unless they constantly tour, and even then, most most acts are noticing their stage sales going down. Um, are you still signing new acts? Yep, yep. So yep. what would what would motivate you to sign a, an act to Borealis? Um, number one, we're moved by their music. We meet them as people, and we like them. We, we sense who they are, and they're at a stage in their their career that a small label that can do some things for them can't turn them into stars. We don't have the, those kinds of resources. Um, that they see themselves in our genre, we see them in our genre, and we both collectively feel that we could be a benefit. We tell them what things we do, and what we could do for them, and how we help artists. You know. And for some people at a certain stage in their career, that makes sense. Uh, also, we've had a number of situations where artists were on their own, doing their own albums, putting them out, and but they got tired of it. Mm-hmm. You know, Jamie Stone, after his fourth solo one on his own, you know, he doesn't have any time left to book gigs right. and, uh, and work on new repertoire because he's too busy doing the business, you know. So he was happy to unload it to us take care of it so we will get it manufactured to make sure it's always in the stock we get it out to media and we market it we basically manufacture and market 
and and but we go to conferences and and we act even though we don't do management for artists um, which many labels do mm-hmm. and that's how they pick up some extra income um, we'll still do stuff that is what managers do but we're doing it just as a favor to support the artists like we we try and hook them up with agencies if they need it in certain territories you know right. or better ones than they were working with for who to book their gigs or they're showcasing somewhere and we make sure people attend make sure presenters we know will go hear them and, uh, sometimes we sit down and we just have general uh career discussions with them where do you want to go and oh you re- you'd like to get into that job okay well maybe we could bring you to nashville and we know somebody who can help us down there and get you on radio there you know and go to the americana conference and showcase you know stuff like that yeah uh depending on where they're at um and we try and do all that i don't know how you do all that because on top of this not only do you make amazing guitars and play music and run a record company but you also write books yeah well <laughs> <laughs> you know now we didn't have kids right and so that you know frees up a lot of time and resources as anyone who has children knows uh so i gotta be fair to that you know um but yeah it's just i mean i'm reaching a point where i am getting a little tired of being overwhelmed i'll be honest you know i'm 66 and, and right but uh but i think i'm just interested in too many things and i have a hard time i see a need Right. Well, and you know how to fix that. Just so you just do it. That's really where it comes from. My first book was because it was about all the instrument makers who were working in Toronto. And I was just so impressed. And I'd tell people they had no idea. Not just the odd guitar maker, but stuff right within the borders of Metro Toronto. That was my criteria for this book. Classical flutes, metal flutes, uh, harpsichords, Two different uh, styles of steel drums, steel pans, uh, bazookies, all the violin family, the guitar family, harps. All this stuff was being, people were working in Toronto. And I thought, people don't know. They don't realize. <laughs> so that was my first book that came out. It was just to tell the world about this phenomenon. Now, things changed, you know, as price got high in Toronto, a lot of craftspeople and artists and other creative folks we all know they had to leave the city Mm -hmm. you know they couldn't afford to be here even earlier days but at that time it was a document of the time and so it was really just i gotta tell the world about this it's great stuff (laughs) you know that's really where i was coming from wow um and then then i was writing fiction for a while um and i did get one novel published um, even though there were two others still in the bottom drawer and a lot of short stories, but they turned out to be sort of, they were more young adult short stories. And, uh, and one of them interested a literary agent. And she said, are you doing any more writing? Yeah, well, let me try and do something with this. And well, I said, I don't know this story. Oh, I know what it was. The first little story was I was working in the shop and all of a sudden the concept of, of a kind of fairy tale origin to why the four main woods used in guitars became the ones. So I created a mythical fairy tale of how it all happened and wrote it out and I showed it to somebody and they said, well, yeah, yeah, no, I know an agent, but there's this woman who, who works with, you know, uh, juvenile. So why don't you show it to her? You know, that's what they call like young adult fiction or anything, not adult. 
And I did. And she said, you know, it's a good story here. You know, you can write. Are you thinking about doing any more writing? I said, I don't know. This just came out of me. You know? <laughs> but that was encouraging. So I did. And I started writing stories after stories after stories. And then they got bigger and bigger until one short story became 60 pages finished. And I thought, well, first of all, that's too long for a short story. Right. But I think maybe I just need the length of a novel to really flesh out the characters and the story. So that's why I started writing novels. This was before Borealis, okay? And, and one of them eventually got published. It would have gotten published by a, a more serious publisher, but they said at the time, they said, but can you change, you know, the sexual aspect into maybe the guy was just, uh, he, he was drunk or something. But I said, no, that changed the whole story. The whole point was this 11-year-old boy you know, losing his innocence mm -hmm. and what he witnessed. And this was powerful. And so, no, I wouldn't change it. So a small publisher picked it up. And then even a uh, uh, the agent got some interest from somebody in California that could have made it into a television movie. But they said, you know, we like the characters. But could you remove the sexual? And I said, no, no. Nowadays, probably irrelevant, right? right. But in those days, so, but I did get it published and, and then that was right. It got published the same year Borealis started and then there was no spare time in my life anymore. Well, I can run a record why. company, which you need to write fiction. Yeah. You need big chunks of it. That's why people go to cabins for a year or whatever. And I understood that now. What I would do then when I didn't, didn't have a record company, uh, you know, they hadn't started the Folk Awards. Oh, yeah, we haven't even talked about oh, them, yeah, right? Yeah. Hadn't started anything. So it was just making guitars, playing the odd gig, and, and I had time. What I would do all day, I'm working in the shop, but a pad of paper was on the workbench. When a phrase would occur to me or a word or an idea that could happen, a plot idea, I'd jot it down and go back to work. But then all day thinking meant after dinner, I was ready to go. Most times. Right. I just, it was bursting out of me. And... But there were the odd time where it would take me two hours of staring at that page to get my own day's concerns out of my brain so I could return all the internal imagery to the world I created. And then you're just watching your characters in the situation and you're just describing what you're seeing, where you've put them. But you need to get into that world and yeah. be out of your own. And there was the odd time it would take hours and I wouldn't get as much writing done. But other times, God, right after dinner and I'd write until it was time to go to bed. And that's so, how I did it. What I found interesting, I sent you an email yesterday saying it's going to be blistering cold today yeah. if you want to ch change the date. And you said, no, no, I'm a musician and the musician in me says, make it to the gig. Yep. Do you still consider yourself a musician? Is that? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm not a professional player, but I still play. Right. And so, yeah, so it's, it's one, one aspect of what I am. Yeah. And but I, but I, my profession is guitar making. Right. Everything else is extracurricular. That's the way it is. And really it is. The guitar making subsidizes everything. And I'm in the shop five days a week. And are you still passionate about m music? Uh, to perform it, not the same degree as I used to be. No. It just, the drive isn't there anymore. So I thought, okay, fine. That's just life changes. I'm still getting a lot of creative satisfactions out of the things I do. Right. And I enjoy performing. I, enjoy, I like being in front of a microphone. I'm, I'm, my entire family are hams, you know? But the fact that you don't do it as much, yeah. does that make it more difficult or do you appreciate it more? It actually makes it more difficult. 
So even when the band, you know, has a weekend of, you know, three shows or something, uh, I've got to spend two weeks ahead every night for an hour warming up, getting my fingers back, doing what they were capable of, you know, learning the lyrics to a new song, whatever it might be. Uh, it takes me long because I'm not doing it all the time. You know, I need a lot of warm up time to get back to the level I was at, not to go beyond, but just to be at the level of what I need to do with that band and to do it well. So it's it's a bit of a burden for me these days. And so I long I started saying no to solo performing a long time ago. Are you still passionate about guitar making? Absolutely. That's my number one. And so I want to. I should close this off. So my final question to you is, tell me, what's the greatest thing you've gotten out of guitar making? Oh, huh. Huh. I mean, did you ever think when you went with Jean Larrave that this would be the path that you would take and you might end up where you are today? Oh, well, I mean, I knew I wanted to be a guitar maker and I knew it'd be what I was going to do. But I didn't think a lot beyond that. I mean, you hope, but who knows what the future is going to bring, right? Because right, you couldn't even tell if you could actually make a living doing that. Oh, I was pretty sure. Now, first of all, when I started my own shop, I was just by myself. Right. I, I had a bicycle. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have a wife or family. I didn't have a house. I, I rented a house with another some other musician friends for peanuts. So, and I was still young. I mean, I was setting up my own shop at age 20. And that was it. And I, I didn't worry about anything, uh, honest to God, because I had orders already and they were coming in. People nice. saw the work I did with John and they wanted one of my guitars. And I've never been without a list of orders. Never. Really? So there's never been a slow period? Well, it, no, no. I mean, sometimes I eat into my orders and there's less of them, yeah. you know, but then it picks up again. Uh, or, you know, uh, when Japan went through one of its first... Uh, uh, financial cycles and it was the first time they experienced it because they were a controlled economy for so many decades uh, I lost a lot of Japanese orders all these customers were freaking out oh my god I might need all my savings I might lose my job you know I can't right. buy a guitar so suddenly I lost like two years worth of orders when things like that happen or even recently I just uh, lost an order from Hong Kong because this woman's uh She's a guitar player and a collector, but it's not what she does for her living. And her businesses are suffering under, under this. She said, all my businesses are down 80%. I'm using up all my savings to keep my staff on. I'm sorry, I can't order the guitar. So is that because of the riots? Yeah, wow. that's right. So, you know, life, you know, things happening in the world affect me. Never mind all the political stuff around them. The woods and rare species and stuff like that. That's a whole other side of things. Um, but no, it's... I'm still that's my number one passion I love doing it and you were asking what's exciting what excites me most about it or what has given me most yeah about what it. have you learned oh it was the greatest thing you've gotten out of it. yeah and what I think is the understanding of the value of an artisanal career of working with tactile things and starting with raw natural materials and ending up with something that affects human emotions. I basically get pieces of trees. Mm -hmm. I'm one step away from the tree, just the raw lumber comes into my shop and I take it from there. And, but through the years, just understanding the value, the, the satisfaction, the pleasure, the luck 
of being able to have a lifetime career in something like that. And then when you add on to it, my level of being a guitar maker, kind of the arty side versus the manufacturer side. Right. So small number, but I get to know all my customers. We develop relationships. And all the levels of discussions of tailoring an instrument to them and then doing inlay art that speaks to them personally and you're giving them a tool for their own creativity that also has art on it. It's this multi-leveled transaction that is so rich in value. I can't think of almost anything else like it. Uh, and, and what a joy to be able to have that as your profession. I'm just so spoiled. Honest to God, it's unbelievable. I am so spoiled. <laughs> well, you did well. I guess so, but I believe me, I feel lucky every day. Even on the days when things are going to shit. You know, <laughs> you know, like happened you know, earlier in the week and I had to spend two days redoing something because something didn't come out the way it was supposed to. But on my instruments, it's got to be as perfect as possible. I have to do that. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate this. Uh, I love talking with you, and uh, great questions, and what a pleasure. Thanks.